Praise God. That was awesome. Uh, my name's Tony. Uh, that was our worship team. That was awesome. Just totally resonated with Heather's prayer that God would have a word for us all today, right? That we would gather in this place and that we'd actually hear from the speaking voice of God to orient our lives and our hearts around his word, right? Not the anxiety of the present moment or whatever article we read this last week. Certainly my prayer for this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, again, my name is Tony. So glad to be with you this morning. Now, as you all know, right, this 2020 has been kind of a crazy year. I, personally, for me, I was super excited at the beginning of 2020. I, we had, Wellspring was in this awesome place. I was super excited about all the things that were going to happen. And then things changed, right? COVID, we've had super intense race conversations, crazy smoke. And now this week, right, we're approaching this pretty big election, and a lot of people are really stressed out about how it's going to turn out. I read this one article. I uh, read this. The 2020 election is now close enough that you can feel its dragon breath on your neck. Right? That's kind of how it feels. It's like next to us and we're, we're terrified by it. At least many of us are. Now, so this morning we want to take a break from our travels through 1 Corinthians, our journey through 1 Corinthians. We'll finish up actually 1 Corinthians in November, then do Advent, and then we're going to do a survey in the Old Testament starting in 2021. This morning, we're going to talk about our cultural moment, all the things going on that might cause us stress and anxiety and everything else, uh, and we're going to lean into and say, all right, what does Jesus have to say to us in this moment? Now, this, morning, this week, I, I spent a bit of time praying and reflecting, trying to get a sense of like, God, what do you have to say to us? And God kept bringing me back to the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation isn't a book I, I often think of as like, oh, this is going to have a word, a pastoral word that's super contextually relevant, right, to the modern church. And yet, the more I sat in it, I read a book by Daryl Johnson called Discipleship on the Edge, which is sort of his focus and take on Revelation. And I kind of sat and prayed and just kind of had this sense, actually, that God has a profound word to us through the book of Revelation. So I'm going to focus there this morning. Obviously, it's a long book, so we're not going to focus on all of it. Let me start with the context. So in the first century, there's all kinds of persecution in the Roman Empire. Uh, it really starts to pick up in AD 65. Nero is emperor, emperor right? and then it intensifies as that decade progresses. Emperor Vespasian comes on. Jerusalem's destroyed in AD 70. Peter and Paul are crucified. Timothy is beaten to death. And then in AD 92, things get even worse. Domitian is made emperor. And he orders all citizens and subjects of the Roman Empire to worship him as Lord and God. He says, okay, everyone, you got to take a pinch of incense and go to this temple I have made in my honor, take a pinch of it and throw it onto the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, there's a lot of people, it's not a big deal, right? They're polytheists anyway, they worship all kinds of gods, and they're like, no big deal, I'll throw a little incense. But for John, right, an original disciple of Jesus, 
one of the key leaders in the early church. This is a big deal. You're supposed to honor Caesar, yes. Worship Caesar, never. Now John's in his old age. He's not going to bow his knee to anyone but Jesus. Now Domitian, the emperor, didn't want to turn John into a martyr. So he had him arrested and banished to this island called Patmos, which is 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And the Roman government maintained these rock quarries on this island where they sent criminals and enemies of the state to spend the rest of their lives. And it's actually on this island, imprisoned by Rome, by Caesar, that John writes the book of Revelation. In Greek, it's called the Apocalypse. Now for us, when we hear the word apocalypse, we think like, oh no, you know, something terrible is about to happen. But this word in Greek simply means unveiling. It's the word used when you lift the cover off of a box. Or in the theater, when you pull back the curtain to see what's happening on stage. And actually, that's John's hope when he writes the book of Revelation. He wants to pull back the curtain so that the churches to whom he sends the letter will see what's really going on. They might think it's one thing, but you pull back the curtain and then you see, oh, that's really what is real and true. This morning, I want to focus on two particular unveilings, two particular windows that God gives to John about the nature of the kingdom, the nature of Jesus, which I think actually speak profoundly into our present moment. This is the first window. So it's a Sunday morning and John is worshiping in the Holy Spirit on the island of Patmos. Right? Domitian is emperor. Christians are being radically persecuted. It's a scary, scary time. This is how John writes his first window. This is Revelation 1, 9 through 13. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. All right, so John is on the island of Patmos. It's Sunday morning and he hears this voice. And the voice tells him to write what he hears to these churches, right? In the midst of all the things that are going on for the church in the Roman Empire. And at this point, he literally turns around and he sees this one like the Son of Man. Now, it's important to realize John is not just like picking up words randomly. He's choosing these words very intentionally. The Son of Man is a technical term that comes from the Old Testament. John is actually riffing off of a vision that Daniel has of this powerful figure in the Old Testament. This vision is recorded in Daniel 7. It reads like this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, 
and was presented before him. So you have this one like the Son of Man that's presented before the Ancient of Days. And he says, and to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Right, so John sees this magnificent, majestic figure who's given all glory, all dominion, that all people are going to worship and serve him, whose kingdom will never end. Right, and we know from the New Testament that this is Jesus. So even though John is on the island of Patmos, even though the church is being persecuted, even though it may seem like God is absent, that things could not get any worse. What John sees, right, the true reality behind the curtain is that Jesus is king. No matter what Domitian says, no matter what Domitian does, Jesus is in charge. I want you to also notice Jesus' location in the vision, right? There's seven lampstands. Those lampstands represent the seven churches. And John writes that the Son of Man is what? In the midst of the churches. He's not up in heaven just looking down at them. He's not outside looking in. He's right in the middle of the churches. Why, it might appear from a first century perspective, that Jesus has ascended to be the Father and he hasn't returned, right? Leaving the church to fend for itself, things are not as they seem. Jesus is with them. He's in the middle of the churches. And because of this, Jesus knows what's going on. With John on the island of Patmos, in all those churches as they are struggling to be faithful, and for us, what that means is that Jesus is with us today. He knows your hard work. He knows your struggles, your fears, your pain, your loneliness. Right and in this first window, what we see is the power and the presence of God. Right, Jesus could have revealed anything. But what he chose to reveal, what God chose to reveal to encourage the churches, right, wasn't a political strategy about how to gain more power or plans on how to mount an armed resistance. Instead, God pulls back the curtain to reveal, right, to the churches that Jesus is king and that his kingdom is coming, no matter what it looks like on the ground in everyday life. Right, because what John needs, what the church needed and needs in our day is to see Jesus for who he truly is. And then notice how John responds. This is verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I live forevermore. I have the keys of death. And Hades, right a minute ago, John is praying and probably stressed and worried about Domitian and Roman rule and all the ways that's going to affect the church. 
But then instantly, right, he sees God in his glory. And what does he do? Right, he falls on his face in worship. When he sees the bigness of God, everything else seems small. From John's perspective, from the perspective of the early church, right? It would have looked like Nero and Domitian directed history, right? They seem to have all the power for good and for evil in the world. And it would be tempting each morning to to read, right, in the Roman Gazette or whatever it was, okay, what is Domitian doing today? How do we respond? What do we do? And sort of be addicted to this obsessive compulsion compulsive urge, right, to pay attention to the actions of Caesar. Right, we don't know anything about that, sort of an obsessive compulsive desire to know as much information as we can about all the things going on in our world so that we can have an ounce of control. We don't know anything about that. But Jesus tells John, don't be afraid, right, I am the first and I am the last. No no matter what those in government, those in positions of power do, right? Jesus is reminding John that he is king, not Caesar. That he will have the last word. That he has the keys to death and therefore the power of life. Which is, I think, a word I think we need to hear today. There's so many things to worry about. What's going to happen in this election, right, if it's happening this week? Right? What, what's going to happen with COVID? When's it going to be over? How many people are going to die? Any number of personal fears that we carry on our shoulders. And I think some of us in this moment need to be reminded of the power and the presence of God. Right? That God is, is bigger than whatever fears and anxieties we might carry within us. Right, that he's not only bigger, but he's also with us in the midst of it. I was reminded as I prepared this message this week of when my children were small, you know, like preschool age and younger. Maybe they're starting preschool or going to a doctor's appointment. There would often be this moment as we're approaching and they're feeling a little worried. Right, and they'd look up at me and I'd see them and I'd grab their hand. Right, and we'd go in to whatever was making them afraid together. And it was this hand-holding, eye-contact moment that was pivotal, right? And it, it helped ground them. It gave them a sense of confidence that I was going to be with them, right? And I was bigger. I gave them a sense of confidence that someone is bigger, is with me to go through this with me. And as I'm thinking about this first window into Revelation, I kind of get a sense that this is what God, what Jesus is doing with John. He's grounding him, that he is with him. He's holding his hand. He's making eye contact. And there's a kindness in that, right? Do not be afraid, John. But then John also is realizing in that same moment that the bigness, the power, the sovereignty of God is at his side. And I wonder if we need to hear something similar to that. We need to be reminded today, right, that the power and the presence of God is with us. Through the election, through American race relations, through crazy fires, through COVID, 
through everything that is going on in our life. That's the first window. The second window is this. It starts in chapter 4. Right? John sees again on the island of Patmos this vision. And this is what he writes. This is Revelation 4, 1 through 2. After this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. In the book of Revelation, one of the most dominant images that John uses is this idea of the throne. It actually comes up 47 times. And here, with all the craziness going on in the Roman Empire, amazing persecution, right? Really, really hard time. God reminds John in the churches that there hasn't been a coup in the throne. Right? The throne is not up for grabs. Headquarters isn't vacant. God is saying to the churches, look. Right? Stop focusing on all the moving pieces of history. Right? Stop focusing on all the stuff going around you. Look up. The king is on the throne. Imagine how that must have felt. How challenging that would have felt. How encouraging. Times were hard. Christians were being fed to lions. All of the early apostles have been killed or crucified or beaten to death. Domitian is on the attack, rounding up Christians from their homes. It would have been tempting that, to, to, to imagine, to think that whoever sat on the throne in Rome had ultimate authority on earth. And yet, Jesus reminds John in this moment, I am on the throne. I am the ultimate authority in the universe. Right? Because it is tempting. It is tempting to assume that because politics affects our lives so much, that whoever is in the Oval Office has ultimate significance. But it doesn't. In our day, who sits in the Oval Office has a lot less significance than who sits on the throne. Sometimes it's easy for us to assume, get kind of anxiously caught in this web of thinking that we need to give more and more attention to who might sit in the Oval Office than who actually does, as a matter of fact, sit on the throne in heaven. Michael Gorman, in Becoming the Gospel, says, one cannot speak of the good news of Jesus as Lord without focusing on the countercultural, religious, and political claims of the story. Once again, if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. The church is tempted in every age to identify with secular power, with emperor, empire, and call that power divine. Right? This is exactly what Domitian is trying to get John to do. Hey, John, grab a little incense, throw it on the altar, and just say, I'm Lord. Just do that. And what does John say? Like, no way. 
Because John knows as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our primary allegiance is always to the kingdom of God. Surely we can prefer one party or another. We can vote in different ways. But our allegiance at a heart and a core level is always, first and foremost, to the kingdom of God. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. I had a conversation a few weeks ago with a friend at Wellspring. We were talking about the lecture, we were talking about all the moving pieces, you know, we're talking about some of our thoughts and fears and all these different things, right? And this friend of mine, as we were ending the conversation, said to me, she said, I'm not sure who's going to win, but I know this. Jesus is king. The truth is, like, it kind of shocked me a little bit kind of reoriented me because the truth is I'd been kind of sucked into focusing on the elections and where things stood and I was so focused on the outcome of the election that somehow in the middle of it I forgot that no matter what happens in the Oval Office Jesus is king Jesus is on the throne right that Jesus is the one who's going to make all things new right no president or country or power that be can do that Right? Sin cannot be fixed by a policy. It can only be removed by the power of God. Right? And later in Revelation, John is going to see this vision. He's going to look up and he's going to see a new heaven and earth. He's going to be see Jesus coming to earth. Right? Jesus is going to come again. And what does Jesus say? I am the one who makes all things new. There is no referendum. There is no elected official that can make all things new. Only Jesus can. Right? Our hope is lynched, is connected to, is intimately connected to the power and the presence and the coming of Jesus. John sees Jesus on the throne. And then what the text tells us in Revelation 4 is that he sees angels gathered around the throne, worshiping Jesus. Day and night, verse four, or chapter 4, verse 8, the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Right Before Caesar, while Caesar is enthroned, and after Caesar, the angels are going to worship God. Verse 11, worthy are you. Right? He sees these elders falling on their face, worshiping Jesus, casting their crowns, their power, their privilege to the feet of Jesus. And they're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. As I read this text this week, I was just... I was deeply convicted. Right, what is my posture before Jesus? Right, am I falling down in worship of God? Am I focused on His kingship and His rule? Or am I running after the news full of fear and anxiety, thinking that if I can just gobble up a little more information, I'll have a little more control? did a little research um, 
as I was reading that book by Gerald Johnson, Johnson uh, on Revelation, he talks about how uh, in the political world, uh, the word worthy is the same word that is shouted by citizens to the emperor when he entered a city. Worthy was shouted by Roman senators as the emperor entered the great hall. Right, and John is saying, what are the elders doing as they're worshiping, right? They're throwing their hand, uh, their crowns on the ground and they're shouting that God is worthy. Right, not Caesar, not a senator, not an elected official. God is the one who is worthy of our worship. And scholars have actually done a lot of research on the words that come out of these imperial hymns. These songs that are sung at political events. And there's this crazy alignment between the words that the angels and the elders are shouting in worship and the words that are used at these political Roman events. The most, the most common ones at Roman political events are holy, glory, salvation belongs to you, authority, worthy. Now these words should sound familiar, we just read them. They're the same words the angels and the elders use to praise the Lord. And John is saying something super important here. While we may be tempted to put our eggs in the political basket, right, to focus on all the political events unfolding around us, John is reminding us that all true glory, all true honor and praise, right, should be directed to God who sits on the throne. Uh, in that book by Daryl Johnson, right, Discipleship on the Edge, tells this story of the funeral of Louis XIV. He's the king of France. Right, and imagine this funeral, like all the, the who's who of the world would have been in this room. You know, it's probably in this big cathedral in France. Everyone would have been decked out in their best, right? Louis XIV would be lying in the cockpit, but all the ornate signs of wealth and power would be there. And in that moment, you'd be tempted to focus on all the grandeur and all the, the trappings. And this priest, looking at this group of the most powerful people in that country, looks at them and says, my friends, only God is great. Right, because it's sometimes tempting, right, to look at our world and assume that Trump or Biden or the EU or COVID is going to have the last say, but it isn't true, right? God is on the throne. God reigns, right? And this is what John is trying to tell us in the book of Revelation. Things are not as they seem, right? He kind of pulls back the curtain so that we can see Jesus for who he truly is is, right, in our reality for what it truly is. If you read the scriptures, what you'll find is they never promise that the visible circumstances of our life will proclaim the sovereignty of God. The truth is, often the visible circumstances of our lives call into question the sovereignty of God. And this is why revelation, this is why unveiling this is why lift, you know, pulling back the curtain is so important in times like these because we are reminded right, that Jesus is with us.
that Jesus is on the throne. And we don't need to be afraid. Now to be clear, this doesn't mean that we don't act politically. Right, if that were case, William Wilberforce, who was a Christian who was central to the abolition, abolition of slavery in the British Empire, right, he would never have acted to, be, to undermine slavery. And I think that brought God pleasure and joy to see him do that. The point is not that we never act politically or we don't care about action in the world. We do. But our heart posture in the middle of it is of utmost importance. If you read through the letters, in Revelation 2, uh, there are seven different letters that uh, John sends to the churches, right? The words of Jesus to the churches. Right? Jesus stands in the middle of the seven lampstands. He knows what's going on, and he says something to each of the churches. And I wondered this week, what he would say to us? You know, vote for this candidate, not this one, or vote for this issue, or not this one. And that kind of, that kind of guidance would be awesome. <laughs> but as I read about what Jesus says to the churches, this really isn't the kind of feedback he offers. He says nothing about who to vote for. He says, well, because it's not a democracy at that point. He says nothing about how to secure political power or influence. He doesn't give them a way to fight back or start a revolution. And when I read through the, his letters to each of the seven churches, one in particular stood out. Uh, his words to Ephesus. He could have said anything. There's important things going on in the ground. Tons of important things to be done. Lives are at stake, right? What we do matters. This is as true today as it was in the first century. Jesus knows this, but it isn't his focus. He starts by praising the church in Ephesus for their hard work and their patient endurance. Revelation 2, 3, he says, I know that you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. The Ephesians are working hard. Imagine that context. Imagine how hard it would have been to be faithful. Right? They're doing good stuff. They're not giving up. They're persevering. And from the outside, right, if there was a model church in the first century, it would have been Ephesus. Doing all the right things. But as you keep reading, this is what Jesus says to them in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you have at first. On the outside, everything looks perfect. But the church at Ephesus has a flaw at the center. It was doing the outward actions, but at a heart level, it was distant. It had started to prioritize the wrong things. <coughs> and I wondered, as I read this text, what, what Jesus might say to us. I think certainly in 2020, he would praise us, right, for our good work, right? You've navigated distance learning, right? You've juggled work and parenting. You've fought for causes I believe in. You've served my people. You've endured this season 
well. Like, well done. I think we need to hear that well done from God. And I also wonder whether he might ask us whether we've kept our heart and our eyes on him in the process. Because at least in my experience, it's quite easy in a season like this to get up, caught up right in everything that's going on. To invest ourselves in worthy causes and in the process, like the Ephesians, lose sight of Jesus. Right? That he is with us. That we're never really alone. Right? That he is our king. Right? That no one else deserves our allegiance and our focus like he does. And at its, at, its, at its core, at his core, right, he loves us. I think this morning, right, Jesus wants to pull back the curtain. He wants to reveal himself to us afresh, that he is king, that he is with us, that he loves us, that he calls us to himself. Now on the ground, I think this has a few implications. First, I think I might wonder whether some of us have gotten caught up in the anxiety of the moment and our attention, right, has shifted from worship of Jesus to all the other things going on, whether it's the election or COVID or any number of personal things going on in your life or community. And I think this morning Jesus is challenging us to look up again, to focus on Him, right, to focus on who He is, right, that He is King, that He is worthy, I think he's challenging us to have an honest look at our lives and our heart. But especially as this election comes up on Wednesday, I think we need to pay attention to where is our allegiance. I think Jesus is challenging us to focus on our own heart, on our own eyes, and be honest where we have drifted or not. And I think, you know, historically, this is where the process of confession has been central in church history, to honestly tell Jesus where we are at. And ask for him to align our heart and our mind and all of who we are with him and his kingdom. If you feel like maybe you've drifted, I invite you today, tomorrow, right? Take a time for confession. Time to turn back to God and ask him to align your heart and eyes with him. And I think for all of us, I want to invite us both this morning and this week to enter a place of prayer. Because actually, prayer is a profoundly important way for us to declare that our hope is in God. Right? It's a way for us to mentally, emotionally, and spiritually remind ourselves that everything is subject to the govern, governing authority of God. Right? That Jesus is on the throne. That Jesus is the one who rules. That whoever is in the Oval Office is less important than who is on the throne. Chris Wright. And here we are, God's, has this great quote. He says this, Prayer is a political act, for it appeals to the authority that is higher than the states, whether emperor or king or president or prime minister or parliament or supreme court. When you pray, the opening words of the Lord's Prayer, you are effectively saying to all those human authorities, there is someone above you. That is an act of political perspective, which we need, right? It puts all human authority in its proper 
relative position, subject to the governing authority of God in heaven. And I think this is one of the reasons that Paul, right, throughout the New Testament, encourages Christians to pray, right, for their leaders, for their governors, right, to remind them, the Christians, that God is ultimately in charge. Wellspring, this week we have an election coming up. We're in the midst of a pandemic. There's so many moving pieces going on. I just want to take a moment to pray for us in this season as we reflect on these passages that God would speak to us. God, we ask that you would open up our eyes just as you did to John on the island of Patmos. That as we stand here, just as he stood there, you would pull back the curtain and help us to see what is true and real. That we might not be deceived by the historical circumstances around us. And God, we pray for a realignment. God, I pray that you would recalibrate our hearts. That they would trust in you alone. And God, if we feel called towards political action, awesome. But let us, in the midst of it, remember that our, all of our allegiance is with you and your kingdom. And God, throughout the day today and in the days to come, please lead us, God, into prayer. Even if it's a five-second or ten-second prayer as we're leaving the house or coming back in, when we feel the anxiety spike or a little bit of fear, God, help us return to a place of prayer. That in that spot, we may declare your supremacy. We might declare your glory. We might declare that you are king above all. That you are the one, Jesus, who makes all things new. God, that we wait for your coming. God, that we just declare that whoever sits in the Oval Office is much less important than the mere fact that you, Jesus, sit on the throne. God, to you be all glory and power and might from this day forevermore. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.